Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, in celebration of Dad's birthday, we discuss James Brown's influence on him in the 1960s and 70s. Maybe I should start, you know, R.I.P. Danny Ray. The first time I became aware of James Brown was in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. I just knew him as an entertainer. You know, he'd been on, on, on the Ed Sullivan show, and, you know, it was a big deal to see an entertainer like that on, on, on the screen because we didn't really see that many Black folk on television yeah. back in the 60s. Now, yeah. James Brown, as a star... The thing that caught my attention about James Brown was his dancing. Mm-hmm. And I'd always look, I always look for him. Yeah. Uh, I think your, your grandmother used to say that uh, whenever James Brown would come on, I would go and check him out on TV. Yeah. And then in 1968, I became a member of the, the James Brown Don't Be a Dropout fan club. So you were 12? I was about 12. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so he had a record uh, called Don't Be a Dropout. Now that I'm thinking about it, it might have been a little bit earlier. I think it might have been around 66 or 67, now that I think about it. But I still have the ad clipping for the James Brown Don't Be a Dropout fan club. And I had had another one that I'd filled out and I sent that in and I got back an autograph, not by him, but it's a print, but an autograph glossy of James Brown with a little card, a membership card for Don't Be a Dropout fan club. So I still have a a, a fragment of that. I have a little folder from 1969 and it's got my my cartoon drawings on it and everything. And inside of it are clippings, TV shows that I was watching. It's like a little time capsule. Yeah. And I was consciously aware that it was going to be like a time capsule so that years ahead, I could look back and say, what was I watching on TV? What was I, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then we moved to Lexington, Massachusetts in 1970, mm-hmm. fall of 1970, because grandpa got a position at the Kennedy Institute of Politics at Harvard. So he took a, a fellowship there. And so while we were there, I was at Lexington High School. This is during the days when the idea of busing was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Austin was notorious because there were people like Louise Day Hicks, political, white political activists who were strongly advocating against busing. And some of the early attempts to bus, people throwing rocks at the at the buses. And, and you know, busing was basically to integrate the schools? Integrate, yes, integrate black students from the inner city into white schools. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and our school, Lexington High School, was part of that program. It was a program called METGO. So we had students from Roxbury mm-hmm. and Dorchester come to Lexington. They had an African drum group up there. Mm-hmm. I got to know some of them. Some were in my, in my Spanish class. And, and we, like many families in Lexington, the suburb of Boston, we became a host family. We were a host to a young man by the name of David Thompson mm-hmm. from Dorchester. So he would come up and, you know, spend some time with me. And the idea of a host family is that if there was a snowstorm or something like that, that the kids wouldn't be stranded, they'd have some place to stay. Right, right. So I would go down to Dorchester, nice family. His mother was very welcoming and all that. And so one time we said, hey, James Brown is going to be playing down at the, um, 
I think that it was called the Battle Zone. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember of it, but it's in Boston. The Combat Zone. The Combat Zone. <laughs> combat Zone. There's a there's a Combat Zone or Combat District, but they had this theater which had been around forever, mm-hmm. and James Brown was going to be performing there. So we went down there to check out James Brown. He had on a, a green jumpsuit. This is about early 1971. Uh-huh. So he came out there and it was Bootsy and and James was, you know, I mean, we were up in the balcony, too, because, you know, uh-huh. the, yeah, I mean, we, we were kids. Right. Yeah. And it was it was a great time. It was a great time. Had, had, had a great time. And that was the first time. I think that might have been my first concert music concert that I ever went to. What was that experience like, too, just seeing him on stage? Like you've been watching him on TV or like looking to find him. And then he, there he is tearing what? up as James Brown. It, it was electric because he was he was just constantly in motion. I mean, the groove. I mean, yes, it was James Brown, but it was the groove. Yeah. The groove was so infectious. The last time I felt something like that was at a Bob Marley concert. Mm. Mm-hmm. Went to see Bob Marley. The Commodores opened for him. This is at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Frankie Crocker, who was a, a, a legendary DJ, was the MC, And Bob is there. And Bob is just, you know, and it had been raining outside and people had their umbrellas. They kept raising their umbrellas up and down to the beat of the music. Inside Madison Square Garden. Inside Madison Square Garden. So it was like a sea. It was like going across the Middle Passage, you know, like on a ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, of Black Sea, of people and the Sensimilia, I mean, the... Mm-hmm. You know, it was all around, you yeah. know. So the vibe was 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 like, but it was so simple. It wasn't like Earth Went in Fire with the pyrotechnics and Verdino. Yeah, yeah. Inside, you know, it was just the groove. Yeah. And so I'm saying that that reminded me of James Brown because that it was the groove that mm-hmm. that really captured uh, my imagination and my feeling. That's that's what stayed uh, with me. And it was almost the same feeling I had by the vibe, that togetherness that I felt at Hunter College back in 1968 when I saw Martin Luther King a couple of weeks before he was assassinated and and the message that he was giving and how everybody was together as one Mm -hmm. with the message. He was there in support of and supported by a local 1199 which later years later I became a part of when I worked as a recreation therapist at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York. Oh, wow. Just across the street from the Audubon Ballroom. Wow. So James Brown. So now I had already had the experience of James Brown with Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Yeah. I had my, started collecting my James Brown records. I'd start hanging out with my friends who were into James Brown, like Roddy, mm-hmm. you know, Roddy Thomas, you know. <laughs> And uh, we we be reciting the the words of James Brown. I, I can't I can't explain how culturally significant and powerful James Brown was. We had political leaders, but in terms of like a cultural leader, James Brown was right in the forefront. And the groove came behind him, propelled him, and he and that groove propelled us, mm-hmm. and that brought us together. And he so totally changed the landscape. Mm-hmm. because of his groove. There yeah. were other great entertainers. There was Jackie Wilson, you know, and his dance. There was, um, uh, what's the guy who did uh, Monkey Time? Um, Monkey Time. Yeah, there was a... 
There's a song called Monkey Time uh, by, um, oh, what's his name? Major Lance. Anyway, he's a fantastic entertainer as well. So there was a lot, lot of folks who were doing that. Even Billy Preston. If you see it, there's a video of Billy Preston dancing, doing the boogaloo and all the stuff like, you know, James Brown. Yeah. 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 With his hair, you know, conked. Before he had the big fro. <laughs> that was before the big fro. That's right. That's right. right. And, and that's the other thing. When James had, had always had his hair conked. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that was a thing. And I've, I've gone through different experiences just with that stylistic aspect, because your grandmother used to take me to a hair salon where she used to get her hair done mm-hmm. in Harlem uh, off 145th Street. It was called Landeros. Mm-hmm. And the guy who used to do her her hair was a guy named Harry. And Harry and, and Landero had a certain mm-hmm. thing going on. I would look up at the at the walls of the salon. And there were paintings that were done of men and women with different hairstyles. Mm. And all of the hairstyles were straightened. They were all conks. They were the Marcel, the this, the that, you know, they were all the pompadour, all these different styles of of hair. And so James Brown, to see him come up in that and to, I recognized that because I was familiar with it. I saw it all around me. Yeah. When we moved to Riverdale, there was a place called Date Shopwell. Then it became the Food Emporium. And there's a guy who used to d- deliver groceries up to Skyview. Mm-hmm. His name was Sylvester Blackhead. And he used to slick, conk his hair, you know? Yeah. I died and laid to the side. <laughs> and, then, and he had, and in those days, guys used to take silk, black silk wrap, and they would put it, and they would, to keep their hair pressed mm-hmm. you know they used to call them do-rags yeah still the, that was well, yeah, before, before that was not the not the ones do-rag. that looked like a chic or something you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right 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 no this you was not the case in the back or anything yeah yeah none yeah, of that stuff was, man yeah. this is the real deal this is the, yeah. you know, like, the original like, do-rag like you see in the temptations movie and stuff there you go yeah that was it <laughs> that was it he was like in the temptations and he used to take, there was an Econoline van. I forget who made the Econoline vans. Probably Ford. Ford, I think it might've been Ford. And, but what he did was he had it jacked up. The van was jacked up in the back. And so he used to, you know, and he'd be going up the hill, you know? Uh-huh. And I used to like, look at this guy like, wow, you know, man, <laughs> that's cool, man, you know? And he had that conk. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and now this is really opening up here. I used to watch James Brown. Uh-huh. And he had his hair processed and everything, right? Your aunt, Lynn, you know, grandma used to give her um, these like little black dolls. Mm-hmm. They all had straight hair, but they were black. So grandpa, he didn't straighten his hair, right. but he used to he used to put a, a, a product in his hair called Pomatex. Pom- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, like yeah. But, yeah, but it's called Pomatex. Uh-huh. And, and was green, sort of like Afro Sheen, Afro Sheen you know? And mm-hmm. he used to put it and then he would wear a stocking cap mm-hmm. on his head, right? So you take one of your grandmother's stockings, you know, uh-huh. and then you cut the ends off, you put a little knot on it, and then you put it, and it was sort of like a do-rag, like now, except without the, you know, that little... The cape. Sheet thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that would give his, that would give his, his hair a little wave. So yeah. if you look at some of those photographs of him from back in the day, the way the light hits it, you can see there's a tiny little wave Right, mm-hmm. and that comes from the sidekick. So, I took some of that Pomatex, mm-hmm. and I put it in one of Lynn's doll's hair, 
and I used to style it and slick it back and comb it back and everything and have it like a little <laughs> thing like James Brown, right? And, and, and then the thing is, is that when the Beatles showed up in 1964 in the Ed Sullivan show, mm-hmm. I watched them. Mm-hmm. And I went out and I asked grandma, I think I invested, I forget how much it cost. Mm-hmm. Maybe I invested for my allowance, I saved that, but I got a Beatles wig. <laughs> I wanted to get that they, they were selling Beatles wig, black yeah. hair, beetle wig, a little cap and everything and everything. And I had yeah. my Beatles wig. But what I did was then I took it and I used a pump and I tried to take the hair and make it like James Brown. Have <laughs> 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 calmed hair, you know, like the thing. Yeah, yeah. That was still the era for the most part. Mm-hmm. When the idea of having good hair was still in our consciousness, yeah, you know, that's brainwashing. That's it's like the doll test, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when James Brown came out with "I'm Black and I'm Proud," and he went from conking his hair to wearing a natural, yeah, that was telling everybody, and and also just using the word black, right, rather than a negro, as opposed to negro colored, <laughs> you know, yeah, negro colored. I remember when I was a kid living in the neighborhood. I can't remember his name now, but he lived across the street. He was um, of Polish-American descent. And I went up to him and we were playing and I went upstairs, you know, to his house. Like you go to a friend's house, right? Yeah. So he, li- he lived in the upstairs of this house. His, mm-hmm. his family lived there. And I got to the door and then he went in. Then he came out while I waited at the door. And I said, are, are we going in? He said, uh, n- no, um, uh, my, my mother said you can't come in. Mm-hmm. And I said, why? He said, because you're colored. So I'm about 11, you know, yeah. 10, 11 years old. I was hurt. And I remember kids saying, look at you. You you look like that. And they were pointing mm-hmm. down to the mud on the ground. These are neighborhood kids. Yeah. So everything that seemed to be around from television and from the lack of seeing people with their own TV shows. You had things coming at you from different races telling you you were less than, you were not as good as, you know? Right, right. So saying all of that to say that when James Brown came out with I'm Black and I'm Proud, we could sort of lift ourselves up a little bit higher. It was already there, but we just needed somebody on a bigger stage and a platform mm-hmm. to say that. So then I had the opportunity of, we had a place called Neighborhood House in Riverdale. And in Riv- and, and in Neighborhood House was a what you might imagine. It's a like a community center. Mm-hmm. And I would go there for summer camp. And they also had kids coming in from other neighborhoods. And one of those neighborhoods was Marble Hill. Right. Which technically was part of Manhattan, but we always thought of it as the Bronx, you right, know, right. But phys- cause physically it was in the Bronx, but technically it was part of Manhattan, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But I had a good friend named Arnold Davis. Mm-hmm. His nickname was Bobby. And I've sent you some photographs of him at Max, uh, Max's Kansas city um, with him, Roddy, myself, mm-hmm. Neil, Victor, <laughs> uh, Lynn, because grandma had picked that place out because she knew that Andy Warhol and all the artists went down there, the musicians, you know, from the village and all that. So she said, I wanted you to go to a place that was an artsy-like place, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Bobby and his family, his father worked for the post office, his mother, Alice, very nice woman, very nice family. And I used to always travel with them, like on weekends. 
uh, we would go from, it was the Reverend Teak who had a, had a church uh, right there. And we would take, we would go to Sunken Meadow, which was a state park in, uh, I think in Long Island. And we would have the music function at the junction by Shorty Long. I just want, I want to testify by the parliaments when they were still more or less a doo-wop kind of group. Right. Yeah. Before they dropped some acid and then blessed us with all that music right 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 just you know and, and bootsy pre-bootsy yeah you know, yeah and wasn't bootsy with james brown at some point yeah james james bootsy was there in boston when i saw him perform oh wow <laughs> bootsy, bootsy had been with a group called the daps mm-hmm. um out in um was it Cincinnati? I don't think it was Cleveland. I think it might have been Cincinnati. And James Brown's original group had mutiny. And he knew that there was a lot of tension. So mm-hmm. he had quietly been cultivating this group on the side. Yeah, yeah. You know? Meanwhile, he had flown Bootsy and his brother Catfish, Phelps mm-hmm. Collins, and all these other guys from the Daps to perform. And they yeah. knew James Brown's music down because they, they were, you know, you know, James Brown. Right. So the only person who stayed in that band from the old band was Jabbo Starks, the drummer. Yeah. And so they they hit it and they continued on with the show. And Bootsy says that they felt bad because when they were coming onto the stage, they were walking past the old members of the band and they were, you know, like, what? And he said they felt so bad because these were their heroes. Right. You know, they had studied them. They had watched them. And this was the show you were at or that was the same year? This would be after, because if I saw them in 71, the mutiny had taken place yeah, maybe around 70 or so. You have to look that up. And then Bootsy jumped ship and went with George Clinton and then yep. followed by Maceo and uh, uh, Fred Wesley. And so they, they jumped on the mothership. Maceo ended up in Prince's band. <laughs> too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. That was the link because Prince remembered seeing James Brown off on the side when James Brown came to Minneapolis. One of the guys in James Brown's band, who I think you might have seen. Whenever we I, saw James when Brown. You saw, that's right. When, when I took you to see James Brown. And I think he's sort of unsung, but he played bass. He played keyboards and he was the band leader uh, for a period of time with James Brown. And his name was um, Sweet Charles Shirell. Sweet Charles. He has an album that I got when I went to RISD and it's called For Sweet People by, by, from Sweet Charles. So James Brown as a force stayed with me. He had some controversy because of Nixon. He had supported mm-hmm. Nixon, I think in 72. And a lot of people distanced themselves from him. He had a different philosophy. He was more conservative in a lot of ways. A lot of people didn't, re- well, he didn't realize that, you know, not everybody could just pull themselves up in the same way that James Brown did. I'm having James Brown's happen in a lifetime. Right. So now fast forward, I was talking about people that I grew up with who like James Brown, going to Sunken Meadow. We mm-hmm. had the record player in the back of the bus, little portable record players that were run by batteries. And then they put on the parliaments and all those other groups and we would listen to them. And uh, and we'd be dancing, you know, be like like the like the Sunday picnics and things, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and just just jamming, just jamming from Long Island all the way back and wherever. And and that's the way it was. And with Roddy it was the same thing. We get on a mini bikes mm-hmm. and we say, you better watch the man, you mm-hmm. know, from uh, um, escapism. I think that came out in 71. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and hot pants. Big hit. So when I was in high school. 
and music and art, James Brown was like all over. He was the foundation. Yeah. And it was at that period of time, right? When I'm in when I'm in high school, that was the 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 ingredients of of what became hip hop mm-hmm. and breakdancing. Mm-hmm. You know, there was already all early forms of breakdancing taking place mm-hmm. in the cafeteria. There was these, you know, to be the cipher and then the person get in the middle and yeah. do the splits and go down and do the breakdown and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so now I'm going to college, right? I'm at RISD. James, there was an album that he had that came out that I used to play ad nauseum. And it had a, it had a particular cut on it that I liked. And the cut was Funky President. And what fascinated me by this time with some of James Brown's album, particularly that one, was the album covers. Mm, mm-hmm. I did a composition for one of my classes that was based on that album cover. It's got James Brown looking straight ahead. It's got a, there's a gun, there's a rat, there's a there's a woman, uh, the person at a door. I guess might be a prostitute. It was a, you know different kind of vices and and situations of of. And I think there was the Capitol building in the background somewhere. Um, and there was some, you know, it showed distress, you know, country in distress. This is the time of, you know, Curtis Mayfield and others are making social statements. And this was James Brown's way, you know, of making a statement. So you have to understand, I'm, when I'm in college, this is around the time of Watergate. So when he came out with Funky President, that was James Brown's statement about uh, Gerald Ford, the new funky president. And when he says, and the last part of this is how we need to change things around here. He says, I need to be the governor. Mm-hmm. Now he's, yeah. he's from Georgia, right? And shortly after that, the person who campaigned and became president after Ford was from Georgia, <laughs> Jimmy Carter. Wow. Right. So I was Still in tune with James Brown, his politics to one side, but I still appreciated him as a force and, and, and continued to be that way. Yes, he had that impact on Prince, like he was saying before. Sweet Charles was recounting how when James Brown went to Minneapolis, little Prince came with his father. His father was a musician and wanted to see James Brown, and he allowed them to sit by the stage and check out James Brown on the stage. Yeah, yeah. Little, little Prince, right? Yeah, yeah. Little Little Prince, right? Yeah. And Michael Jackson is paying attention to mm-hmm. James Brown, you know? So when he gets, does the audition for the Motown folks, what does he do? I got the feeling. Yep. And I got the feeling, by the way, that song was the first song that I listened to. I was in my room in Skyview and I closed my eyes and listened to it on the radio. The main stations that I listened to was WWRL, mm-hmm. WMCA, WABC, WMCA was the home of the good guys. I don't think I was listening to WNJR at that time in the 60s, but definitely WWRL. What was that called? The Soul Station, you know, mm-hmm. Super 16. That's where, you know, you had Frankie Crocker. You had later on Imhotep, Gary Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the guy, Jerry Bledsoe. These are guys who are part of the Buffalo Brigade, came down from Buffalo that, that had been mentored by a guy named Eddie O.J., who, who also was at WWRL and WLIB AM before it switched over to WLIB FM, mm. which then became under Frankie Crocker's leadership, WBLS. Right. Right. And so 
the Buffalo Brigade, the reason why I want to mention that is because Eddie O.J. mentored a group out of Cleveland. The O.J.'s. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's how they became known as the O.J. He was their manager. Wow. And he was a DJ, a popular DJ. And he set, he had a certain pattern and everything, you know, which, you know, in those days, the DJs, and that's, that's a whole other conversation about the, the importance of black DJs as spokespersons, as the connection with the communities, especially mm-hmm. the black community. So I'm listening to this. It's almost like, even though we, we lived in, in Riverdale, I was tuned into this. Mm-hmm. I was tuned into Marble Hill. Mm-hmm. You know, I was tuned into parameters outside of that enclave of of, of Riverdale. Yeah, you know, I had no idea at the time that that Alan Klein's place, some blocks down on Palisade Avenue, that he was hosting these events with Andy Warhol and John Lennon for John Lennon's uh, Imagine album, with Miles Davis being there and Miles and John Lennon playing basketball and stuff like this. I'm 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 just riding my bike up and down, you know. But I was aware of a broader world, you know, in terms of the black community and so forth. This was my way of connecting. It's sort of like the kids in the South who lived in a segregated community, Mm -hmm. but they had the radio because the radio went beyond color lines. And yeah, it could have been that way for kids to listen to WDAS in Philly, Mm -hmm. you know. So now, you know, I'm at college and James Brown is still with me. Yeah. And it stays with me. And then finally, you know, then James Brown fell off. Nobody's listening to James Brown anymore. Mm. Around like right after you graduated college? I would say probably, yeah, around, you know, by the time 78 comes around, 77. You're into like Miles Davis at that point. Like other Earth, Wind & Fire have taken over. Like so other people have man, stepped in. How much time do we have? No, nah, we don't need to go. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save those conversations about those artists for other times, but I'm just asking like, the, no, like but, other okay. So, James. so, so I grew up in a household where there was jazz, mm-hmm. classical music, mm-hmm. the American songbook, mm-hmm. Latin music, Johnny Pacheco, mm-hmm. the Duke of Iron, the Calypso, mm-hmm. um, and then together with the R&B I was listening to, also musical soundtracks, you know, right. Peter and the Wolf. Your, your uncle was particularly taken by Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> we would act out those scenes, you know, with the mm-hmm. hunter and all that stuff. <laughs> um, uh, West Side Story. Your, 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 your great-grandmother, Grandpa Ty's mother, also had musical soundtracks from West Side Story, the sound and music, not the sound of music, um, my Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I used to be fascinated looking at, wow, look at these. And I, the reason I liked My Fair Lady was not so much, I know I'm digressing again, but not so much because of the music in it, but the album cover. Mm-hmm. Because the album cover of My Fair Lady was done by Al Hirschfeld. Mm. Al Hirschfeld was the guy who did drawings, yeah, from uh, New York Times magazine and or New York Times uh, newspaper. And he would always have I would always look at the New York Times to see in his drawings, he would hide his daughter's name. Oh, wow. Her name was Nina. And so he would have like his name, Al Hirschfeld, and then he would put like a three. And so you'd have to find the three different or five. And five instances where Nina was in the hair, (laughs) in the clothing, in the fold, in the crease, you know? All right. So fast forward. 
um, uh, he was always a hero to mine. There was mm-hmm. a documentary that was done on him called The Lion King, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, L-I-N-E. Yeah. And so one day I'm in the car. I think your mother was next to me. And we're near Columbus Circle, on right like around 57th Street at a traffic light. Mm-hmm. And this gentleman crosses the street. Oh, I was in the back seat of the car. You were were you with Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cause you like damn near got out of the car, if not did get out of the car. (laughs) And we're like, that's Al Hirsch felt like you remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was a big hero. He's you know, so when you see a line in my work, you know, a lot of that. So that's another kind of influence. I wanted to jump out of that car, but I couldn't leave you guys. I know, yeah. I remember you, you were like, I don't know, you, you were like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> he had his portfolio, he was carrying it with him. Yeah. And his studio was nearby, and he had in it a, a, a barbershop chair that he would sit in. Oh wow. I think that's what that's what he used to use to, you know, to sit in to do, you know, his, anyway, a big, a big hero. All right. So so I would look at these. Um, drawings and things, and that that inspired me in in my own work. Okay, so now um, the music I'm listening to in the household, I'm listening. I'm listening to all this classical and this and and uh, Misa Criola, you know these choirs and such. And then I'm listening to R and B and pop music and all. And I remember one day your uncle was listening to a radio station. I think it was WABC, you know, something like that. I had a guy named Cousin Brucey, mm-hmm. Bruce Morrow. He's on um, Sirius XM now. I think he has his own radio show. He's like 86, 87 years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, your uncle swore that when the, music, when the song came on, the musicians were coming into the studio. would perform <laughs> their song and they would leave. <laughs> You ask him about that. That's you ask hilarious. About that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those were good, good times, good memories. Um, when I got to college, though, RISD, nineteen seventy four, I'm meeting some other black folk there. I'm there listening, being exposed now to Sun Ra, right? Mm-hmm. Nineteen seventy four. I'm being exposed to uh, Rasan Roland Kirk. Bright moments. So I'm exposed now to this new music, and I was not familiar with Sun Ra. And it was only many years later when Lucia was uh, visiting Lucia at the, at the lighthouse. They had a recreation center in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Lucia was there, and, and one of the volunteers that was helping the blind there was this woman, and her name was June Tyson. Mm. And I said, I said, oh, I said, I recognize your name. Now I recognize the name because I had been exposed to Sun Ra. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she she was a dancer, singer, you know, primary singer with Sun Ra. And so she and said. She worked at this uh, Center for the Blind? She volunteered. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where, where Lucia was. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I said, yeah, I, I really started getting into this. She, I said, do you have any recommend? She said, I recommend this particular album of Sunrise to you. It's called Cosmic Tones for Mental Therapy. Mm. I said, oh. It was interesting listening to that particular album because the tape that I made around 1979, which has me beating out a little rhythm and using my harmonica 
and this sort of drone-like sound and taking a comb and putting wax paper over it to create this buzzing sound, mm-hmm. you know, came from this kind of experimental sound stuff that I was exposed to. Yeah. You know, except he was using electronic instruments, but he was also using percussion. It was just so different, you know? Mm-hmm. And this goes back to like the early, I mean, this is stuff he was doing like way back. So that's where my interest began to expand. And I started listening to this guy named, I think his name is Janis Xenaxis, X-E-N-A-K-I-S, Xenaxis, electronic music, experimental music. Mm. Uh, It's After the End of the World by Sun Ra. So I was starting to get into electronic music. And some of my drawing and my artwork began to become more experimental. I, I even had like designs of TV screen with abstract forms and lines and things going through it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was envisioning like what the future could be. Well, kind of what the future could be, but but like what, where can I go further mm-hmm. with, with this? And so I have a couple of paintings that I had in my first show, one, one particular painting that references this. And so this kind of futurism is something that I started, um, yes, very much futurism. You know, I had space spaceships. Now we would talk about this in terms of Afrofuturism and so mm-hmm. forth. But in the in the mid seventies and all, this is something I was you know exploring with my art. Did anything end up getting you back into James Brown at any point? Like oh, after he yeah. fell off, then because like Brown. no, because like yeah, because you get into you got into so many other different things and started like um, diving into so many other types of music. But I know that he was still very influential to you. You know, even. yeah, he was still there. So here, I was when I started hearing James, you know, again James Brown had fallen off, and I was I was not buying his albums now. Mm-hmm. For goodness sakes, look at those cakes. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> yeah. Funky president to what? Yeah. You know, I said, this is, no, no, no. So I kind of wasn't into James Brown so much, but I, I still maintain an appreciation for his legacy. I got excited when I started hearing that he was talking about doing things with Sly and Robbie, the guys from mm-hmm. Jamaica, mm-hmm. the guys who would work with um, Grace Jones and, Mm. Uh, this know, is like the early 80s at this point yeah this is like early to mid 80s mm-hmm. you know? and so i said wow maybe there's a chance maybe james brown is gonna you know something's gonna happen here i wanted james brown to have more of a contemporary edge i was starting to listen to more and more hip-hop you know change the beat you know with b-side and fab mm-hmm. five freddy you know and i was like this is like in the early 80s 82 or something like that and i said now, if James Brown could just get that and connect right. that up with, with like what these hip hop cats are doing, because they're they're getting this stuff from James Brown. So right. why can't James Brown take over and sort of continue to lead the way again? I've, I've had that feeling about Stevie Wonder, too, but that's another. Mm. So I started listening to him again a little bit by little bit, but I still wasn't impressed by by the music. So about 1983 or four, he came out with an album. It was badly produced. <laughs> when I say badly produced, I mean in terms of the um, the studio aspect of it, the sound of it. Oh, like the, the mix and the engineering. Yeah, the mix, it just sucked. Yeah. Okay. And you said this is, uh, so he had an album in 83 called Bring It On. He had one in- Bring It On. Okay. Bring it, bring, it on, on. bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. The label was Augusta Sound. Yes, yes. 
It was his 52nd album up until that point. You know, we say 52nd. You have to remember that some of those songs were taken off of one, put on the other. Mm-mm-mm-mm. He would redo a song, the same song, a close version of it, or mm-hmm. maybe it was different, uh, you know, but it was it was kind of slapped together, you know. This, yeah, so, yeah. so the numbers, you know, to say 52 on first, you would say, wow, 52 all original songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nah, yeah. nah. nah it's nah. 52 studio albums. <laughs> right, exactly. That's all it right, was, right? Right. Okay. He's, you know, like Slim Whitman or something, right? You know? Mm-hmm. Slim Whitman, you know, he sold, you know, twice as many albums as Elvis Presley and the Beatles combined. You know, like, who the hell is this? Right. And then you find out that, you know, they play with the numbers and they move stuff around. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, like three card money is so <laughs> no 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 offense to to Slim Whitman. Okay, <laughs> may he rest in peace. So so now I'm listening. To, where do I hear "Bring It On"? Your mother and I go on a on a on a, our the, our trip to Europe, mm-hmm. and we're in Switzerland. We're in Luzerne, Switzerland, and I'm turning on the radio. And the thing about the music station there is that they would play all kinds of music, mm-hmm. all kinds of music. It wasn't like, we only play R&B, you know, we yeah, only play yeah. pop AM, you know? Yeah. No, they mixed it up. They had classical, then they would have something pop, then they had bring it on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, you know, you know, like that. So the I love the music. I love the song. I just didn't like the production work, you know, yeah. it was bad. Yeah. Yeah, right. you hear it. You, it sounds like it's done inside of a a tin can or something. So that's when I started paying attention to James Brown again. Mm-hmm. That's when I felt that he okay, something's happening here, you know. So here's what happens. At some point in the mid '80s, you know, y- your mother knew that I was very much into James Brown. I think she got some tickets, or or I told her about it, and then she got the tickets. So I forget how it exactly happened, but James Brown was playing there, and also with him was Wilson Pickett. Oh, okay, yeah. Wicked Wilson Pickett, right? So um, we're listening to the music and, and it's going and it's great and I'm loving James Brown. And so that's when, so at, at, from that point on, James Brown became, you know, back on my radar mm-hmm. and I started listening to his music. It wasn't the same. Yeah. Because the cultural landscape had changed. Yeah. It was only when he connected up with African Bambada Peace, mm-hmm. love, unity, and having, having the fun. unity yeah. album. That's when you know I said yes. Finally, yeah, he connected up with it. You know, because yeah. we were all dancing. We were all dancing to the funky drummer. Yeah, in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was already old then. Yeah, but right. we were using that because that was a break beat. Yeah, you know? and that's what we would do to do. Now I. I'm not trying to say that I was a big dancer any, you know. No, but yeah, but y'all were still... You know that breakdown that Neil does where he goes down, he does Uh a split, and then he turns around? Yeah. I showed him him the fundamentals of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that became his thing. Yeah, yeah. uh, (laughs) So the next time I got into, I, I really picked up was when now we're into the world of CDs. So I got the Universal James. Mm hmm Right. And that's what you remember as a kid. Yeah. And that album had Leaders of the New School on it. Leaders of the New School. So that's right. With so uh, Busta Rhymes. That's right. So it's like right. you hear Busta Rhymes on a James Brown album. And yeah. like I was hearing Busta Rhymes on a James Brown album and like 
had it was just in my infancy not a, i wasn't an infant i was definitely a kid but i was like seven years old but um but i was in my infancy of knowing who buster rhymes was because oh, okay. i don't even think i think scenario might have just come out like with like the tribe called quest scenario might have just <laughs> been without out within like a year or two of universal james coming out yeah so, uh, yeah so, so, so james brown had come through mm-hmm. all that that mess down in south carolina Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and with the PCP and all that, all that yeah. jazz. And now he was back. And when he came back on, on the Arsenio Hall show, mm-hmm. I mean, that was like yeah. that was incredible. And I remember I paid for it. It was my first time I paid for a view, paid mm-hmm. for view. Mm-hmm. I saw they, they were doing that in support of James Brown, you know, because they were welcoming him back coming out of prison. Wow. But it's but he he's on on Friday night videos. Mm-hmm. with Frankie Crocker. And Frankie used to be an MC for James Brown at the Apollo Theater. Mm-hmm. And they have a long history going back to like the 60s when, when, when Frankie was interviewing him when he was in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, he was a kid disc jockey, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, early 60s. So now Frankie has him on, the, on, 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 and he's promoting the pay-per-view thing. I mean, everybody was there. Al Sharpton, all these people are coming out to celebrate James Brown. And then mm-hmm. he ended it with a performance. Yeah. Right? And then he gets on the Arsenio Hall show. And he, I mean, it just goes on from there. So James Brown is back. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then it was the Rocky. Oh, Rocky, when, when was Rocky? Rocky was before that. Yeah, that was in the mid 80s. Right. Yeah, that was in the mid 80s. Yeah. That happened in 85 or so. The Living in America song is on the Gravity album. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the song um, Static. You know, don't start none, won't be none, right? So that was mid 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 eighties too, I believe. Yeah, just before he he had those yeah. those issues. And yeah. Static was on the I'm Real album. I'm Real, yes. I'm and, real. and so and so and so that's another overlap between James Brown and hip hop because the I'm Real album was produced by Full Force. Full Force, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So once the eighties came around, it was like that was the passing of the torch. You had the Africa Bambata connection then you get the full force out al- produced album and then you get universal james in 93 mm-hmm. with the right. rhymes and leaders of the new school and mm-hmm. then and then after that i mean it's pretty much you know well, i mean there's a couple, there's, a couple there's like three is as he does i'm back in 98 mm-hmm. uh and then he has a christmas album and then he has an album called the next step in 2002 and that was it yeah yeah and it was really, and, and we can't forget Bobby Bird as mm-hmm. well. Yep, and Bobby Bird is a writer on a few songs on James's final album. He too. wrote a lot of, he also wrote a lot of James Brown songs back in the day mm-hmm. as well. Some he didn't get credit for. And, um, you know, tell the truth, you know, James Brown was old till Eric and Rock came out with yeah, I Got, I got soul. soul. Yep, shout out to, <laughs> that's <a> Sonic. <laughs> and that was a bad, bad song, man. That, that I, uh, I Know You Got Soul. Uh-huh. Oh, bad in a bad in a good bad meaning good <laughs> yeah 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 that's right, yeah. that's right so yeah so james brown was back and um you know and and so it's always stayed with me but i one thing i forgot to tell you mm-hmm. i talked about how i was laying down i was listening to i got the feeling yeah when i was laying down that was the first time that i closed my eyes and i saw colors of the music mm. Mm-hmm. I had the synesthetic moment. I saw purple, silver, blue, black, white. Mm-hmm. Those are the colors that I saw 
and they were sharp angles because of the staccato horns, right? Mm. I took that memory in the early 2000s. I created a painting called Corner to Corner in 2002. Corner to Corner, the title came from Herbie Hancock's Future to Future. But corner to corner, because the angles of, the, of the, some of the lines, the shapes, go from one corner to the other. But the angularity and some of the original colors that are underneath the colors there came from that memory. Because I did a drawing of that memory on paper. That, that was originated from the experience of, of listening to I Got the Feeling by James Brown when I was about 11 years old. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you notice that, that some of the shapes there, the way that they float, you know, like the black shape float mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. some of the other you know it's it's got that 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 um, magic eye mm-hmm. effect yeah you know? and 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 i like that i've done that with a couple of other ones sometimes it's hard to to get it right but once you understand like how colors play off of each other you can create that kind of depth yeah in, in your work so yeah so that's that's one thing i wanted to mention to you thanks for bringing that up yeah of course that's awesome dad yeah. Thanks so for sharing that. that. That was really, really cool. <laughs>